Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray of iNewspaper and iNews.co.uk. I am once again joined by the returning George Belshaw uh, and the ever-present Calvin Bettel. George, how are you? How is your knee? Yeah, I'm much better than last week. My attendance record for the podcast has been pretty poor in 2022, hasn't it? It, it certainly has, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a bit of a disaster. I know I sent you a fairly... Um, Lucid message last week, should we say? It was so stoned. Um, I only really realised how stoned you were when you then logged on this week, and I was like, "Oh no, that's what George sounds like." Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I've really had to wean myself off some quite strong uh, duty drugs, so mm. I'm feeling okay. Yeah, better than last week. Still not doing very well in terms of getting around, but much cheerier at least. Very good. Uh, and Calvin, always cheery. Uh, yeah, or always absolutely really happy and everything's <laughs> today's no different. <laughs> I saw, uh, well, we, we will start, by the way, by talking uh, about, they've had a couple of reviews this week, which are very nice, and we're really appreciative of when people leave five-star reviews, so um, I should shout them out. I, I'm going to preface them by saying, Calvin, if your ego is feeling particularly large today, maybe don't listen, because I think it'll I think it'll just take it over the edge. Um We've had one from Danny R, who I think I know who this is, but he, he says it's an excellent weekly roundup and analysis of the tennis world. Over the past year, I've become an avid listener of James, George and Calvin. The show is a proper journalistic take on tennis with some hard-hitting views and a good balance of enthusiasm, expertise, irreverence and humour. Thank you, Danny R. I remember, by the way, you can get in touch in so many different ways. You can drop us an email, lovetennispod at gmail.com. You can tweet us. Uh, at love tennis pod or as danny has you can leave us a review and that that's pretty much the guaranteed way to make sure i read something out is to leave a five-star review um as jane h has she's a very informative and relaxed podcast i look forward to my weekly tennis update from james george and calvin 
Calvin is the star of the show with his coach's perspective and insight into the weekly topics. He also has a very dry British sense of humour, so there's lots of good banter between the three presenters and have a relaxed style. Um, they've updated their recording equipment lately, which is very true, uh, and the improved sound quality makes a big difference as a listener. Thanks very much, Jane, for getting in touch. And we've also had a review from Marky Large, uh, who says, Best tennis podcast. I listen to a bunch of tennis podcasts, but this is the best. Actually funny on occasion, which feels like damned of faint praise. Uh, good insight from the hosts, and a bit more technical than some of the other shows. Um, I assume that's me. I'm obviously the sort of technical one here, so we can only assume so. Um, thanks, everyone, for getting in touch. As I say, it always makes a massive difference. It means we can reach more people, and we're dragging our average Apple podcast rating up bit by bit but we still need your help we need probably need about by by say the summer and i'm thinking wimbledon probably need about 30 more five-star reviews and given that there are two and a half thousand people there or thereabouts who listen to this podcast i think we should be able to get them please help us out um wherever you wherever you do get them but preferably on your iphone or mac let's start talking about tennis shall we and start talking about ourselves uh <laughs> Well, I say that, and then I'm going to say the words Nick Kyrgios, which which means we not might not talk an awful lot about tennis. But he has at least been winning tennis matches this week, specifically on clay, which I think surprised him as much as it surprised anyone else. He made it to the semi-finals in Houston, which my mum has been watching, and she says, oh, it all looks a bit dirty. You know, there's not very many people there, and the court looks a bit of a mess. Um, George, I'm tempted to agree with her, which isn't very usual. It does look a, like the clay looks a bit rubbish. <laughs> Well, it's because they're breaking tennis laws by playing clay outside of Europe in the European clay swing. You know, this is the point where you're meant to be over here. Get out of Houston and fly over. I think that, that's the theory. Um, yeah, I quite agree. It's um, yeah, it's been a, bit, a big serving week, hasn't it, over in Houston? Been a lot of uh... the tallest ever ATP final between Riley Apelka and John Isner, which uh, Riley Apelka closed out. Um, how many tie breaks were there, George? Oh, I think there were only. There certainly wasn't in the first set. I think there was only one. Was it only one tie break? But it did go nine seven, so we got our money's worth. Is that just the tallest match ever, or is it also the tallest final? Have they already broken the match record, or is there someone else lurking out there who's actually? Well, I feel I feel like almost anyone versus Ivo Karlovic, like anyone over the height of about six foot one against Ivo Karlovic, is going to give us a problem. I feel uh, like Elka's as tall as Karlovic. Am I making that up? Uh, you know what, George? I'm going to fact check. I need a bit of a height check here. But... Uh, I, I think you should check your height privilege, to be honest. <laughs> I think you just think everyone, you just think, oh, he's not that tall, is he? Riley Pelka's 2 metres 11, allegedly. That is really tall. Right. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like 191, and that is pretty tall. Like, 211 is too tall. I so think. is Ivo Karlovic. He's the same height. Yeah, so. I was going to say, they must be pretty close, those I give, you, I give you some credit there, George, for your your anti-height height knowledge yeah uh yeah i mean that's not the final you expect on clay I, I don't really know what that tells you i suspect just looking at the field i mean <laughs> you know there weren't a lot of elite level players there realistically because as you say most of them are in europe playing clay court tennis here as they should be but um yeah i, I, I don't know too much to read into it the reason i really want to talk about houston was not john isner or riley Pelka, who as you know i think should be banned from tennis largely I wanted to talk about Nick Kyrgios, who beat four Amer- three Americans, although, admittedly, Michael Moe pulled out before they could play, uh, and got to the semi-finals. He beat uh, Tommy Paul, he beat Mackenzie McDonald, 
and he racked up a few more tens of thousands of dollars, 35,000 uh, 35, in Miami, and he also will almost certainly get fined if he's not already been for his antics in Houston. Um, George, do you want to start with Kyrgios on clay? I mean, he says he's going to play the French Open next year, but like, who cares? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's been a bit of a funny week, hasn't it? I think he said like some of the form this week was like the best he's ever played on clay, and he, he does look pretty sharp when I'm catching him. I don't really understand why... He, well, I do understand in the sense that, as Calvin will say, he's a part-time tennis player, which is why he can't be bothered to play on the clay. Woo-woo, but... sound the part-time <laughs> tennis player, Claxon. <laughs> but he... But, you know, it, it seems to me that he's actually in really good form and playing really good stuff this year. I, I, I reckon he should just have a swing at the clay, have a bit of a free hit, chill out, which, you know, maybe that, that part's the big problem at the minute. But actually keep a bit of momentum going, then get onto the grass in good kind of match fitness as well. And he'd, he'd win Wimbledon. That's my theory, obviously, this year. He <laughs> argues with someone in the fourth round. Yeah. Uh, I wish I wish I could show you the face that Calvin is making at the idea that Nick Kyrgios might win Wimbledon if he plays a full clay court swing, Calvin. Yeah, I mean, he can play on clay. He's beat Federer on clay before, hasn't he? Beat him at Miami, I think, one of the really good match. Uh, not Miami, um, Madrid maybe, I think. In Madrid, in a final set tiebreak. Yeah. Uh, in 2015, Spot quick up there though, isn't it? That's servers paradise, Madrid. Yeah, but it is still. I mean, I suppose what, what doesn't this really just tell us that like clay isn't that different from hardcore? The thing is, I think what people mistake with clay is that it's so slow that you can't hit winners on it. But as I've said before, so some players, the advantage of certain, certain players is they hit so big that they can hit through the clay, and they're, therefore they're better on clay than somebody who just doesn't really have any real weapons. Like if you look at Stan Wawrinka, Stan Wawrinka won a French Open. He's one of the best clay court players the last 20 years. And he's not somebody you would say he just makes loads of balls. He won those tournaments because he can hit so big that he can hit through the clay. Um, so, yeah, it massively surprised me. But having said that, I don't know who Kyrgios beat that you wouldn't expect him to beat at this tournament. Um, On any yeah. surface. Yeah. I, I, you know, and... It's yeah. Actually, just coming back to what your mum said, James, about how dirty it looked. That tournament is actually held at one of the most prestigious country clubs in America. Wow. Um, a place called River Oaks, where it's I think it's one of the top three or four most expensive country clubs to be a member at um, in the whole country. It's pretty nice. So standards I'm are slipping. I'm 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 here to tell you. <laughs> the the interesting thing about what Calvin's saying there is that he's almost uh, approaching Curios's disdain of clay as if it's got anything to do with actually the tennis side of things. The only critique I've heard him make of clay is he gets his shoes dirty. I think that might literally be his big problem with clay. Like, it, yeah, well, he comes on as as a, as a trainer connoisseur as I am. Um, he's actually <laughs> taken to. He always comes onto court wearing a pair of Air Jordan One lows um, that he changes his, into his tennis shoes when he um when he starts playing now incidentally i wondered about this actually that danny willett was actually playing the masters yesterday in a pair of golf air jordan one lows wow and i wondered whether curios might look to get some of those um made for tennis hmm. yeah I, i'd be on board with that and i'm not a trainer connoisseur just on 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 what you were saying earlier george and go and play the clay and be ready for wimbledon and actually this is where i, I agree with nick curios for once uh, he says, I want to go home, you know, and in fairness, he hasn't been home since, well, January, I guess, like pretty much since the Australian Open. He went and did the Sunshine Swing. That's a month and a half and they're doing an extra week here. If he then went to Europe, 
did all the clay, did the French Open, did Wimbledon. He'd be away from home for the best part of six months, like on the trot. And in fairness, I don't think there would be many players who actually sign up for that. And that that's one of those things, like as an Australian, that you have to kind of schedule around a bit, especially if you're someone for whom home and family is really important, which I think for Nick it is. Yeah, and well, I mean, that, that is fair enough, but why not sack off Houston, go straight back, have a three weeks there and then come back for Madrid, Rome, French Open. The schedule's wide enough in the clay season. There's loads of random tournaments like Barcelona plugging the gaps that means you can still turn up for some big points. And he, he would do well in Madrid. I mean, that that's in ter- if we're looking at his season as a whole in terms of ranking points, Madrid is built pretty nicely for Kyrgios's game style. You know, we've spoken about Zverev being really effective there before. Like, you know, big is big servers paradise. So, I think it's a, a silly tournament for him to kind of skip um, because he could do serious damage there at the minute. Mm. I'm, um, um, I'll, I want to go on record as saying I'm not buying that at all. That he needs to go home. Like, <laughs> it's just like, the professional tennis players, the tour. Like it's not affecting Alex Dimonor. I think you find he's Matt not Ebb. a professional tennis player, Calvin. Well, by your own true. standard, yeah, that's true. He's and a also you, you, tennis player. you slightly overrated the sun, that he's not been home since since January. Like the Sunshine Swing only started about three weeks ago. It's not not a no, month and a half. No, no, hang on. It's the eleventh of April. And he did Acapulco, didn't he? To be fair. Yeah, he did Acapulco. He chose. As well. He chose to do Acapulco though. Who wouldn't? Right? <laughs> wonder why. Wonder why he played Acapulco. I can't, I can't think any benefits of why he might have wanted to go there. Mexico in February. Yeah, no, yeah. Not, not for me, mate. Um, the other thing that caught headlines probably more than Nick Kyrgios actually playing on clay was Nick Kyrgios, in the words of the Australian Associated Press, in their intro, blown a gasket again. He's already been fined a five-figure sum this year for his behaviour in various tournaments in Indian Wells and in Miami. He will pick up more fines for his behaviour against Riley Apelka. Um, umpire Joshua jo- Josh Brace made a mistake of admitting he'd ma- made the mistake of admitting he'd made a mistake. Quite frankly, uh, and he did say to Kyrgios, I, "I missed it. I got it wrong. Uh, Five-all in the second. And uh, after which Kyrgios, frankly, lost the plot. Uh, there are a couple of warnings for swearing on court. Uh, he got a good point penalty when he was break point down, so that's effectively a game penalty. Um, he he was just going absolutely mental at the officials. George, it, in fairness, you know Nick Kyrgios is a player of a certain level, and this is a 250 tournament where the umpiring presumably isn't as good. So can you kind of have any sympathy for his frustrations? I mean, look... <laughs> I've been thinking about this a little bit because I think there's a bit of a narrative going around the tour. It's not just Kyrgios. I mean, Kyrgios is the one that makes the most headlines, but there is this permanent narrative at the minute from players being like, when I make a mistake and lose, you know, hundreds of thousands a week, it costs me. I get knocked out of the tournament. When an umpire makes a mistake, they come back the next day and carry on or whatever. Um, so there's this kind of attack on kind of the accountability of umpires, I suppose. And, you know, I, this isn't new just to tennis. It's something that goes on in the Premier League all the time, don't they? They keep going on about, let's get Mike Riley to sort out the standard of the refereeing. It's a kind of narrative. And I think you know, generally when you play sport, particularly uh, an individual sport where you can't blame your teammates, blaming the umpire is quite an easy solution, I think. So mm. it's quite easy to... But I think it's become kind of prolonged attacks on the umpires now and quite a common uh, theme of blame. So... Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say I've got a ready-made solution probably to pay the umpires 
maybe they could take some of the match fees of the players and give it to the umpires to improve the standards of officials. That might be a good solution. I'd like you to raise that at the next players' <laughs> council meeting, George, just to to see how that would go down. I mean, uh, the salaries and kind of you know umpires' money is pretty. It's a closely guarded secret, right? I, I've seen like one report that claim to have the numbers, but overall people don't really know how much they earn. I think I'm right in saying. I've been texted figures of how much they earn. And if you give me five minutes, I might be able to find it, but I can't remember <laughs> off the top of my head, but it's obviously higher for the slams. I think that yeah. the, the nature of pay is that you get kind of tour contracted umpires. So they pay There are some that are paid a flat salary by the tours. So that'll be your, quite high level ones mm. and you've got the slams also hiring at a higher day rate and then you've got tournaments hiring umpires specifically um for their tournament um on, yeah, presumably on lower pay mm. um but I'll, I'll try and dig out some figures if i can might be next <laughs> week um calvin it's obvious that nick kyrgios treating umpires like crap is is bad and you know feel free to come off the long run on that but uh, you know to make the con- discussion more constructive do, do you think the standard of umpiring at that level say at like atp tour level is good enough um i mean first of all i think when you said that the the umpire would be lower down at AT, uh, atp 250 i don't actually think it is i think that umpiring atp level is the highest you can get. I don't think there's much of a difference between whether it being at 500s or 1000s and that kind of thing. I think it's a gold gold standard as a gold badge that they call it, I think, mm. which puts you on the ATP tour. Um, look, it's one of those. It's the same as football in referees. Um, I say this all the time that the referees and the umpires could be better, but also nobody has ever lost a tennis match because of umpiring, regardless what Nick Kyrgios says. He's got about another... 149 points that he can try and compete and win without that one so Mm. i don't have any sympathy with him and it's every time he loses that he blames the umpire he still refuses to ever blame himself as i said the other week he can't cope with being down in situations he can't he can barely cope when matches are even and he's not getting his own way and he can't cope at all when he's down in matches it's Mm. it's no no different from any of that dug out one figure which isn't particularly instructive, but can give you a bit of an idea of the spectrum. So a Grand Slam final is typically worth about £400 to the chair umpire. I mean, that is not very much. I, like... I would I would say, though, that you have to think that that comes in the context that they probably have had like a subsidy towards staying there and stuff, so they, their fees would have been paid to be there. Well, well hang on. Are they not on... So you're telling, me, you're telling me that's... That's you wouldn't match. just get the final. You'd be looking at if you yeah, do the yeah. final, you'd, you'd be probably doing a semi. You're probably doing a quarter. And... Yeah, but yeah, okay, it's probably, so you could, it's probably a let... flat day rate, roughly. Yeah, I still think that's not very much realistic. I think that they've got. I, 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 I'm not 100 percent certain of this, but the feeling I get is that they're on a flat rate from the tour. They're on a rate from the tournament, and if you get the final, you get extra. That's how that, I think. That, that, that would make sense, right? Is yeah. to be like, yeah, to to give you some sort of guarantee. Don't look, while while we're talking about standard of umpiring one thing that's not going to help going forward is the hawkeyes everywhere for, for for anybody who doesn't know you don't just become an umpire you become a line judge and then the best line judges end up becoming umpires if there's no if everywhere is just going to have hawkeye everywhere where are the line judges going to come from how are they going to get this practice and it's like anything they're training a skill they're training their eyes to be able to follow the ball and 
that's only going to get worse if we have Hawkeye everywhere. The, the umpires have got nowhere to go. And, and the following on from that, you know, if you think about the Australian Open bringing line judges out of the equation, that's all very well for them who can afford the technology to put in tournaments. But that doesn't happen every tournament down. Yeah. There's not enough money out there. So or if you're reducing top level opportunities at tournaments that pay the most, you're making it a less um, attractive career. But look, you still need these guys tour around, so it's it's a massive problem on that. Look, front. Lo- lower down, lower down the rankings. While we're on about pay, the the, the umpires at Challenger and twenty five k future level, they don't get any. They're hardly getting any money. So the reason that why they do it is they want to do it so they can get jobs at the ATP level. And if we're doing away with them, you're going to lose the umpires down at Challenger and ATP. And all you're going to get then is you're going to get local people, local umpires, local line judges who let me tell you are bad. They they can cost you a match because they're that bad and they're often quite biased. I've seen it. Well, the, the the other alternative, which is even worse, is having the players call their own lines. And there are some you've probably seen on Twitter. There are some incredibly dodgy calls at the lower levels. I, I've quite always wanted to watch like big matches between Federer and like Nadal when they're calling. I'd get on board with that. I'd say I've said before. <laughs> I'd, get, I'd get on board with that. I'd love to see Kyrgios play against Fognini calling their own lines. <laughs> <laughs> I paid good money for it. Uh, yeah, I think that would be... Uh, we could get that on pay-per-view for sure. Um, I think it's also worth saying, and I know this sounds a little bit um, kind of like someone wringing their hands and going, woe is me, but if people at the top keep treating umpires like this, forget forget the implications of Hawkeye and not getting enough experience and the whole system breaking down, people just won't want to do it. I sure as hell wouldn't want to be an umpire given the way they're treated at the top. I mean... It, what's the point? Do you, does anyone really want to be in front of millions of people on TV and thousands of people at the stadium having Alexander Zverev or Nick Kyrgios screaming at them? And, and you, you don't even have like a celebrity refs account where you can be Mike Dean running around doing ridiculous <laughs> things. Like there's, there's no upside. It's like no one knows who they are. Oh, Mohamed Leone. The problem is, a couple, a couple of things that I've also always sort of held firm on this is that one, right, and I've sat there, right, the chair umpire, the umpire's chair is not the best place to call lines from. It is, you can get a cup, you can get the service lines all right. The rest of them I've seen, it's it's not good. It's it's a wrong angle. It's too high. It's in the middle. You don't want to be there. So it's strange that they get to overrule some of the lines. The other thing I think what annoys most people, I, I don't necessarily like the the rule on clay where you can come and, um, and challenge on a mark and that kind of thing. I think once the match is longer than about 15 minutes long, you've got too many marks. And mm. it, it happens a lot. I said this on Twitter the other day. It happens a hell of a lot where umpires get the marks wrong. And, and I once watched a match with one player who, um, it was a junior final, an ITF junior final, and one player repeatedly kept serving the ball out. The umpire would call it out, but then you, you just had the umpire, you didn't have any line judges. So she'd call it, at, the umpire would call it out, and then the player would go and point to a mark that was in, and the umpire would just give her the ace all the time. And it was like the number of times that I thought, that is not the mark. Like, but they just, they constantly just take the first mark that any of the player suggests. And sometimes, yeah, they'll see the mark themselves, but I never get it why a player can just circle a mark and the umpire will just go, okay, that's definitely the mark and then go and give them the point. I I don't like that rule at all. I, I, I would respect an umpire and like, I kind of respect Joshua Brace for saying to Nick Kyrgios, albeit that it caused problems, I made a mistake. I would quite respect an umpire who came down and said, well, that's not the mark. I can't tell you what is the mark, but that's definitely not the mark. I'm sorry. Yeah. Call stands, and that's life. 
and also a a quick one on that as well which and this is a real gripe i have with with the mark thing is that james has just pulled a face there (laughs) if i've got a real gripe with something that's uh, that's extreme and it's hard to explain this without seeing me but the marks on the, the lines on clay are often not always anymore but they're often raised off the ground yeah so if a ball comes into it and clips the very back of the line that line is not that high on a normal court. So what is the line that we're talking now, if that makes sense? It's going to clip the back end of the line. Say it clips the back oh, millimeter of the line. And if it weren't raised, normal, it wouldn't have yeah, hit that piece the, of yes, line. Yes, exactly. But they'll give it as in on a clay court. But you think on a normal tennis court, that line is about two millimeters lower down or a millimeter lower down. It wouldn't have clipped the back of the line. It would have been just out. And I, I always wonder why that why they still allow that rule on the clay court. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've always I saw one today that was really bad. Diego Schwartzman uh, in Monte Carlo uh, uh, against Karen Hatchinoff, just screaming at the poor umpire. And they got into an in-depth discussion about exactly how a mark is manufactured by a ball. And, you know, they were both looking at the same mark, basically. And, and the umpire was saying it was in and Schwartzman was saying it was out. And I think once you get to that point, and I said it on Twitter as well, I would just say, let's just take a no tolerance like approach to shouting at umpires. Yeah, you know, like in rugby union, if you, you you talk back at a referee, they just march you back 10 metres. And I, I think the problem is that the penalty system in tennis is actually too harsh because you get a point penalty, a, a warning and then a point penalty and then game penalty. It actually gives the umpires no flexibility to just go, you shouted at me, that's a point penalty. And just to keep giving them point penalties and escalate it if they have to, I would actually be in favour of kind of making the point the penalty system less harsh I, I quite like the idea of bringing in that rugby rule into tennis that every time you get one you have to serve 10 meters further back from the game. <laughs> 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 I mean that wouldn't bother some people like you say to Rafa Nadal you have to stand five meters further back he's like okay He's, he's I, I saw that up. one. Um, I saw that one with um, Schwartzman, and I didn't actually see the mark. I just saw because you you think retweeted it, James. I think yeah. didn't you? Um, and I do have a little bit of sympathy with him again. Cause that was my other point that I think some of the umpires don't appreciate how different balls leave different marks and how it would be different from a different ball. So the the size of the mark, the skid of it, where it came from, couldn't possibly have left that mark and that type of thing if that makes sense and i think some of the umpires often they approach it so f- matter of factly that's the mark that's that's definitely in or that's definitely out hmm. yeah I, I just think the whole relationship now between players and umpires is completely broken like i i don't you know i'm neither a player nor an umpire at elite level so i don't i can't sit in those conversations and know what exactly what it's like to be an umpire or a player but it feels, particularly at the moment, like there is just no rapport. There is no kind of give or take on either side. And I get, I get that, like seeing it through the the lens of Twitter and um, only seeing the incidents that blow up, you don't see all the ones that actually go fine. But I don't think these incidents are acceptable. I don't know about that. You know, I mean, I know, I think the umpires tend, the players tend to have decent relationships with the umpires off the court. They'll speak to them and they'll, you know, they'll see each other at dinner and that kind of, not necessarily out to dinner together, but from my experience, they, they seem to get on pretty well. Um, but there's no report on court as far as I Oh, on tell. court. Yeah, maybe. But then I guess situations like Nick Kyrgios and Serena Williams and Alex Zverev don't help that situation, do they? Hmm. If we, 
<clears throat> pinching ideas from other sports. They've got um, Premier League refs, don't they, going to train with certain teams this year. So we could maybe send uh, Mohamed Layani on a training camp with Roger Federer in the off-season. Kind of I don't know if that would be such a bad thing. Like, I, I, think, I think that's actually not a bad idea to say, you know, all right, go and... Get, I'm playing a practice set today to one of the umpires who hasn't got a match that day or who's off or whatever, or if it's during a practice week, say, can you come and umpire this practice set? You know, and it creates a bit of match intensity for the players if they need any more. It's decent practice for the umpires, but it also might create a bit more understanding on both sides because you actually would find situations where you can just have a conversation and be like, right, hang on, look, if this were a real match, you'd be off by now because this isn't acceptable or whatever. I don't know. I, I'm kind of spitballing, but you have to imagine that we can't keep going like it is, right? Like this, this, this current situation is is broken. Thing is that bad if you take Kyrgios and Zverev out? Is it that bad? Are we having that many big rows? You could argue that both of those are just dickheads. So is that <laughs> is that a systematic failure or is it just a human failure? So no, what I'm we not... need is the same rule that the All Blacks have had for the last thirty years. Well, yeah. No yeah. dickheads. But I mean, it's yeah. I really get the impression now though that Kyrgios is looking to start arguments. It's like every match he's in, he's he's having the same argument about how umpires are a disgrace and they're rubbish what what what's nick curiosa's solution to this does anyone know like what what what's his well his, i mean getting? if you take his uh, on-court remarks it's usually that he runs the tour he does all the right. umpiring <laughs> write the theme tune sing the theme tune all right we'd have about five tournaments a year i'm not sure that whoever's bidding <laughs> for the tv rights would be overly keen about that i'm alex rodriguez and i'm jason kelly from bloomberg this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm going to do a couple of listener questions. Questions, comments, they're all the same. Uh, I put out a tweet this morning saying, what was on your mind? Uh, had Klaus, I'm sorry, Klaus, I'm going to mispronounce your surname because there's two Gs in it and they're separated by an L and I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm going to go Fulgard. Uh, says great pod because you call it as you see it do not start pleasing people say you're too harsh on the WTA I had a feeling in that last podcast you changed direction a bit your strength is your honesty Uh, thanks for your comment Klaus Uh, I would say that we have been harsh on WTA in the last couple of months because we haven't been getting 
the big matchups that we want. But then we did. And so the, we were in a position where we had to say, you know what, this is the kind of match that we need more of. Um, so sorry, Klaus, hopefully this week is uh, more... Uh, we're still being honest. I don't think we'll ever not be honest. But um, hopefully this is more honest. Uh, Love Will Survive has been in touch. Uh, and they say... Well, two questions here. A, any five players with one hand, one-handed backhand in top 100 WTA rankings? I can tell you there are currently two. Uh, I, I don't know whether either of you will know either of them off the top of your head. There's Golubic. Victoria Golubic is exactly one of them. Uh, the other one is my pick for Young Player of the Year earlier uh, in January. Diane Parry, the French player, also has a one-handed backhand. I don't know, through history, Calvin, um, as our resident old person, um, women with one-handed backhands? Steffi Graf. Steffi Graf had a great one-hander. She used to slice it about 99.9% of the time, although I would if I had Steffi Graf sliced, to be fair. But um, (laughs) she could drive it as well. Um, Sabatini was one uh, with a one-hand. There used to be a lot of of the women used to slice them, so Novotna... Navratilova, a lot of that era who's, when the women were still serve volleying quite a bit mm. um, would, would have one-handers but yeah, I think Steffi was probably the last great one I'd mm. say. And the other question um, from Love Will Survive is why is there no Masters 1000 WTA in Monaco? Um, Calvin, I think you probably have said something about this before I mean, is it quite simply there isn't enough court space? Yeah, there's very few courts. Uh, if you look on the order of play, there's only ever four courts going um, in Monaco. And I don't even think, even if you stretched it to a 10-day event, it's already a, a, a eight-day event. Yeah. I don't even think if you stretched it, that I just don't think they'd have the court space, to be honest. Yeah, they, they couldn't even expand it to be a bigger men's event than what it is, really. It's already a pretty tight... Um, it's as small as a Masters 1,000. It, it, it is very right? small, yeah. And I guess the main question you could probably ask is, couldn't they bring a WTA Monte Carlo like the week before or the week after or something and kind of have a, a two-week Monte Carlo extravaganza? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that would be very valid as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't think we need more tennis tournaments in Monte Carlo. Like, <laughs> I saw <laughs> something... Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's lovely, but like in terms of growing the game and inclusiveness and all that, I don't think Monte Carlo is the place for us to do it. <laughs> with the, the greatest of the respect to the Monegasque people, I, I, I don't think that that's where we're trying to really push people. I mean, there's lots of places on the south coast of France who probably should be, but uh, Monaco is not one of them. But thank you for your questions. As always, you can get in touch at Love Tennis Pod. Uh, and we will do our best to answer them. Now, Joe Wilfred Songer has announced that he is to retire after the French Open. Um, he is 36 years old. He's been playing professional tennis for nearly 18 years. Uh, he's been as high as world number five. He's won 18 career titles. He, of course, reached the Australian Open final in 2008. Uh, he never got back to that stage of a Grand Slam. did win the Davis Cup. In 2017, uh, with France, he's also an Olympic silver medalist in doubles. I mean, when you think about reaching that Australian Open final in 2008, where of course he lost to Djokovic, and he was a setup, let's not forget. Um, George, do, do do we think that now, 14 years later, we're a bit disappointed that Joe Wilfred Song has never got back there? Well, this retirement's fallen in quite an interesting week for me, James, because I've been writing a little script about French tennis uh, ahead of the French Open and about this generation. And 
So I've been going through lots of quotes from people like Songa Monfils, Gasquet, and um, Gilles Simon, who are kind of called the golden generation of French men's tennis. And it's about whether they've kind of failed, I suppose, or not. Um, obviously, the main argument that people like Song would put forward is, you know, we've all had really good careers. Most of them have won about 500 matches, you know, which is a pretty good effort at tour level. Um, but there's been three or four pretty amazing guys kicking around the tour during <laughs> their period of um, quality, I suppose. So it's, yeah, I guess kind of understandable, you know, Songa losing a Grand Slam finals to Djokovic isn't the end of the world. Most of his big semis have been losing to top, top players. So I guess you can't really blame too much, but he's been a brilliant player and a guy who just stylistically brought so much to the tour for such a long time. I think, you know, we kind of talk a little bit now about Kyrgios's style and maybe like cutting through a little bit more. I think, I think there genuinely was a bit of a period where at Wimbledon where people actively really wanted to watch Songa. They really loved seeing him. Like he was someone that people who don't watch tennis would always say, oh, is Songa playing? You know, he, he had that kind of extra um, gravitas about him that maybe like, you know, well, Simon definitely didn't, but, you know, Gasquet and to a lesser degree, Monfils probably didn't capture the English crowd quite as much as Songa, I wouldn't say. So, mm. Um, yeah, he, he'll be a big miss, um, as they all will. Calvin, how, how would you rate his career? I mean, a guy who's made the best out of what he had or, or kind of shoulda, woulda, coulda? Um, I remember when I went to I went to spend a week with the French National Academy um, about 10 years ago um, in Poitiers in France, where all of those guys have come from. Um, all of the French generation really came from, except for Gasquet. He was the only one who didn't attend that academy. Um, and they told me at the time they 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 couldn't speak great English, to be fair. But um, their their feeling was that the French players, their mentality is always that they'll have lots of top twenty players and never have any number ones. Um, and I think that that sort of sums up Songa pretty well, and and that whole generation. But look, he's had a really good career. They've made a hell of a lot of money. He's played in some really big matches. Um, I think maybe the British fans, he definitely has. He definitely pulled crowds in, but he also, I think that might be largely down to having a lot of good matches against Andy Murray, that Murray usually ended up winning. Um, but yeah, I remember when he made the final of that Australian Open, I guess you you definitely thought he'd have done better from there because he, he was just completely freakish that, that week. He, he looked like... I've used the example before, like when Becker first came on the scene, this guy was just physiologically bigger and more athletic than everyone else. And there was a little feeling of that with Songa. He just looked bigger, but not big and cumbersome. He looked bigger and faster and more powerful than everybody else. But again, something else that I speak about a lot is that those guys, those really big guys who are athletic, they tend to get hampered with injury later on in the career in, in any sport. If you're that kind of size, the likelihood is that you won't have an injury-free career and it's kind of stifled Songa's career. I'm watching, I'm watching him now, actually, as we're recording, he's playing Chilich um, now, which seems like a match from sort of 2011 or something. <laughs> um, yeah, he'll yeah, be missed. If we didn't, look, if, he, he was he was a, a really good player and he brought crowds in. It's a shame he's got to go, but, you know, he's 36. It was going to happen in the next couple of years anyway. Yeah, Calvin's kind of touched of on a lot of the uh, points I've kind of made in this article about how pe people criticise the French mentality, but there was one bit that I found really interesting in my kind of research. It was some comments from uh, Gilles Simon, where he was like, 
so obviously there's like a bit of a, a worry about where the next kind of French player is coming through. And, you know, when these guys were around, they had something like seven uh, players in the top 40, men and women's, and now they're down to two. One of them's Monfils and the other one's Cornet. So both guys in their 30s and no one else kicking around. But um, Gilles Simon was blaming the issues of the French system on Roger Federer. And he was saying that everyone in France was trying to produce Roger Federer. So I'll read you the quote. It goes, for decades, it has been believed that only Federer's should be trade. And he, with his style of play, his way of going forward, the confidence he exudes, came to validate these choices. He made us lose 20 years. In France, everyone wants Roger Federer. Parents, coaches, we don't realise that Rafael Nadal has won so many grand slams by doing something quite different. So I thought that was quite an interesting analysis of the French system. In the I'm issue. also not entirely sure that that's not complete nonsense because one of the <laughs> one of the, the things that the French do have is they don't like we have this thing with producing players and having a system that produces players. The French don't really have a system as such. They don't have they have this one national academy. They have two national academies: one for up to sixteen, and one that's in Poitiers, and one for sixteen and over that is at Roland Garros. Um, but they don't really have a system. They have such, well, they do. They have such a strong competition system and such a strong club structure that the clubs and the competition basically produce the players. They don't have academies as such where people go and train. And that's that's why they tend to have so many players. And yeah, they, they probably have a little bit of a lull, but I'm not, not going to start sympathizing with the French tennis system because they'll always have players in the top 100. Uh, I was going to say, I mean, you kind of touched upon this here, but a large thrust of this kind of what they wanted from this piece was to be like, why is French tennis failing? And, you know, what are the Italians doing that the French aren't? It's like, well, the Italians are kind of just doing what the French are doing just slightly better at the minute. They're putting yeah. on like 19 challenges compared to 11 of the French, but that inherently doesn't explain why the French system's not producing amazing top-class players right now. And the reality is they probably just will bring a few more through. I think if you look at something like the top ranked players under 20, the top 15 men and women, the French still have the highest proportion. So I think the cycle will probably just come around again in terms of like top 50 players, but it's about, you know, it's really hard to produce like a top number one Grand Slam winner. Like people take that for granted, I think, but the French mm. have a good base level system. I think they have yeah. off the top of my head, three, three under 20 men in the top 20 in the world. Uh, as in, um, as in the top twenty teenagers in the ATP, and about the same number in the women. So, who are those guys, James? Can you tell us the name? Uh, it's Caso, uh, Arta Fees, and the other one. I have just lost it on the page. Arthur Caso, Arthur Fees, and oh my goodness, where's it gone? You know when you just can't see something that you were briefly literally. Oh, uh, Luca Van Ash. Okay. It's not a name I know. Any 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 familiar names there, Calvin? I mean, Arthur, obviously, you know. I mean, yeah, not really. But then that's the thing with the French. You just, even the level that I coach at, really, you see so many of them. There's mm. so many and they tend to come through. They play a lot of matches. They'll often, also the French, they'll often come through late. You'll get guys who are sort of like, again, I'll do a bit of pluralism here. Your, your Adrian Manorinos of this world, <laughs> who kind of, they, they break into the top 100 when they're sort of 28, 29. Yeah. And that's wouldn't surprise me if we saw a few more of those but 
And I think if yeah. you look at the French players in the top 100 at the moment, I mean, if you disregard everyone over the age of 30, I'm not saying as someone who is over the age of 30, I'm not saying being over 30 means you should be disregarded full stop. But if you look at guys who are sort of either in their prime or coming towards their prime, you know, it's Arta Rinichnech, who's 26 and really has only been in the top 100 for the last 12 months. Hugo Humbert, who's 23 and is still maybe struggling to establish himself as a top 40 player. Uh, Benjamin Bonzi, who's 25, another guy who's kind of only just started to reach that kind of top 50 level. Uh, Hugo Gaston, another one we're just sort of waiting to to take off. So you can see, as you as you say, Calvin, they do feel like a lot of late bloomers, George. I think the you know that you look at players like Humbert, and there's nothing wrong with what they're producing technically. There, he's got everything in his game, and what's holding Humbert back at the minute is probably a mental thing sting again i mean in big matches he's not winning big moments you know he's playing i think is what calvin would call being french (laughs) but but you know i mean they they say themselves you know moritoglu goes on about it all the time they don't have a mentality to be champions by the way um that has been heavily refuted by actual french people in the sense of oh we produce world cup winning footballers and champions skiers and everything else so why can't we do it in tennis and so maybe calling it a French mentality issue is wrong and it should be a French tennis mentality issue perhaps. But, <laughs> um, you know, it, it, but again, I, I do stress this point that it's really, really, really hard to produce the top one, two, three, four. I'm not sure you can necessarily train that. There's a degree of luck, I think, that comes with that, that those really, really special players. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, right? Like, you can have all the systems and protocols that you like, but sometimes you just need someone who you think is quite good to turn up to the US Open and have a good draw and it changes the changes like the entire narrative um, speaking... I think the thing with with Humbert in particular is that is a mental thing Hugo Humbert should be a top 10 player in the world like with, with his game and his weapons if you take away the mental side if he had the mentality of Carlos Alcaraz he'd be top 10 in the world there's, hmm. there's no question about it um, so I don't think it's it's anything beyond that with him um, and Hugo Gaston has been in a... Did he make the semis? Is that French? Semis are the quarters? What an unbelievable question to throw at well, me. Of the actual whole French Open? Yeah, that one when it was held in the middle of December or whatever. Fourth round. Um, 2020, he made the semis. Fourth round, then, all right. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, I mean, that is... A, to Hugo Gaston, that's a semi-final. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean... Semi-final of a tournament that will never be held in those conditions ever again. I think remember that one match where he played. Didn't he play something like sixty-eight drop shots? He's a good. <laughs> he's a great watch. I mean, they all are, aren't yeah. they? I mean, the thing about like pair as well. I mean, they've got great. They're, they're top of the rankings for character. I think in terms of like complete mentalists. A lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, certainly the most enjoyable players. And you know, even in the WTA, by the way. I mean, Elise Cornet is a good story and seems like quite an interesting woman. And Diane Parry, as I mentioned earlier. She's got a one-handed backhand. Um, you know, there are Ocean Doda is someone who I think will probably go quite far, and she's got a great game to watch. You know, there's a lot. I, I, I must admit, I love the the idea that that the French are in crisis because they only have about eight players in the top 100 <laughs> across men and women. Can you um, can you name all the French Grand Slam singles champions? There's remarkably few. The men is just Yannick Noah in the last yeah. 50 years, isn't it? Yeah, he's the only one in the Open era. Um, Marion Bartoli. Bartoli, yeah. Uh, how many more are there? There's, I think there's only two more on the women. I think they've come since I think 
There's five slams between them. This is all open area. Five slams between them, three players. Barsley won. One of them was world number one and has coached a fairly famous British Oh, Amelie Moresmo. Moresmo. Yeah. And the other one is the only other French player to win the French Open. Also won two slams. Oh, no, that's bad. I don't know. Go on, George. Harry Pierce. Oh, of course. Yeah. Also, not really French. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I mean, we were Mary all thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Spoke with a full New York accent. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't think I would have got that in a long time because I'm not convinced in my head she is French. Uh, anyway, French tennis not in crisis. British tennis is in crisis, probably. Always is. But if you read enough newspapers, uh, Emma Raducanu this week was spotted at the Piatti Academy, of course, uh, where Yannick Sinner has spent an awful lot of time. Uh, I'm reliably informed, uh, i.e., people in the Raducanu camp say, <coughs> "Thanks, George." Sorry, there is a, there is a mute. You know, there is a mute button. I clicked it. It didn't go on. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to leave that in so that everyone knows what it's like trying to work with you. Um, uh, you you can you can try and tell me now uh, why Emma Raducanu was training at the Piatti Academy. Uh, I don't know, but I like you. I was reliably informed that it's uh, she's still working with Torben Belts in Stuttgart when she's next there. So that's um, something. She that... just apparently she basically just needed somewhere to hit in with decent weather uh, in Europe on clay, which I don't know. I'm <sighs> Calvin. Is that a reasonable thing to say? It happens, you know, it does happen that players will go to different academies to train at and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're there getting coaching advice. Usually doesn't mean that, to be honest. Yeah. Um, there's not many, for one reason or another, there's there's not really, well, you wouldn't want to train outdoors on a clay court in Britain the last two weeks, the way the weather's been. So um, she could have gone anywhere, I guess. Then people normally go to Spain. She might have just fancied Italy or somewhere like that. I guess the thing is, we're kind of at the natural end of a normal Raducanu coaching cycle. It has been about three months. <laughs> I was thinking about this. We made some sort of bet, didn't we? I made some prediction that she'd have more coaches this year than something else. Um, maybe was it was it co- Grand Slam match wins or Grand no, Slam quarterfinal appearances. I think no, it was quarters or semis. finals, I think. But I also agree counting this as well. I don't. I don't think she's getting to a Grand Slam quarter. Oh, what? Are you trying to claim that this 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 trip to the Piatti Academy yeah. is one? This is now three, I think. Three coaches this season. <laughs> right. I'm, I mean, I'm supposed to be going to the Muratoglu Academy this summer. I, I assume that means that Muratoglu is my coach. Who, who's the third this season, Calvin? Well, she didn't start with this guy, did she? With belts? I thought he was in place before nah, this. Nah, she got belts before this season Was it started. right? Yeah. Okay. There both. probably was another one in the middle, but yeah, two then. <laughs> We're only in April. It's true. It's a very early in the year. Uh, speaking of the coaching roundabout and speaking of Patrick Muratoglu, uh, he has announced that he is the new full-time coach of Simona Halep. She, of course, used to work with Darren Cahill. She split with him uh, at the end of last year and is now full-time with Muratoglu. Um, I guess there's two interesting things here, which is, A, quite interesting to have Halep and Muratoglu working together, and that has you know some interest, and I'm sure we can discuss that. But B, and kind of you know, burying the line, so to speak, uh, is that what he said, that he was initially approached, uh, she went to the Muratoglu Academy before in New Wales for a training block. Um, Muratoglu was there, watched her train a bit, and at the end of the week, he uh, she asked him to come and work with her. He kind of said, he said it was out of the question at the time. A few weeks later, I had a conversation with Serena and the door opened for me, at least short term, to work with someone else. I'll keep you updated on what's coming next soon. Now, to me, 
And I know that Serena was on an Instagram Live with Aaron Rodgers recently and said that she is preparing for Wimbledon. But to me, that says that Serena Williams' comeback is far from imminent, George. Yeah, I mean, reading that, I kind of, when I first read it before seeing that interview, uh, I just assumed she was about to say, I'm retiring or going to play the US Open and then call it a day. Um, I guess from his perspective, she probably won't play more than one match at Wimbledon because she won't be fit enough. And then <laughs> he normally likes to hop through about 10 boxes in round one anyway. So it probably oh, he just stays in the box. He's, like yeah. Everyone else moves. <laughs> yeah, he just stays in. in the box. He's like, yeah, I'm working with, uh, who's this? Oh, Alex Molkan. I'm working with him now. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I don't really, if she's really coming back for Wimbledon, you'd kind of imagine he'd only be working with Halep for about four weeks in the clay season and then they're going to be getting physically ready for Wimbledon. So I'm not sure whether it's just, maybe she's just sacked him off to be fair. I mean, that, that is also perfectly possible. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, that would be a very Muritogli way of saying Serena sacked me to say a door <laughs> opened, you know, <laughs> an opportunity presented itself <laughs> that involved me losing my job. Um, but Calvin Halep plus, I mean, <sighs> I, I don't know how much Patrick Muratogli's got to teach Simona Halep, frankly, but you may be you may think differently. I don't know how much Patrick Muratogli's got to teach anybody. If I'm <laughs> honest, uh, he's a very wealthy man who owns a really nice academy. Um, that's what I'd have to say about him as a coach. <laughs> he's also got a great NFT. If anyone wants to get on the uh, Patrick Muratogli NFT journey, yeah, I'd, I'd mean I'd be look. I'd be very surprised if we see a massive upturn in Simona Halep's results. And it's a massive step down in terms of the quality of coach. She's going from Cahill to Patrick Muratoglu. That's a, that is a huge step down. I mean, I guess in terms of her results, she's not really playing that well. And she's a player who could easily be a top 10 player. So it probably from his perspective isn't that bad a bet in terms of I can get an extra 1% out of this player and she'll climb up the rankings. It'll look quite good for me. But I do also, we've spoken about this a bit before with Halep, haven't we? I mean, there is a bit of a sense to me that the game has just, is starting to get past Halep now. You know, there are kind of big physical players out there. And if people like Osaka are pretty serious about coming back, you know, I guess Barty being out of the way, the French Open's good, but Sviontek, you'd back over Halep now on clay nine times out of ten, to be honest. Halep used to be the player I'd kind of go to around the French Open, being like, she's normally pretty steady here, probably the most, the favourite. I'm not sure she's in my top five favourites now for the French Open. So, you know, she's got a, a bit of work to do to kind of prove she's still up there in inverted commas and kind of... The best surface, isn't it? Clay's yeah. her best surface, I'd say. But then um, she, and... yeah, she's won Wimbledon as well and she's... Yeah. And Australia. No, she lost. And, and as we said last week, there's not actually many great clay court players in the women's game. So hmm. wouldn't surprise me if she has a couple of decent results. I don't think that'll be down to Patrick Muratoglu. But he can claim it as Carney, so that'll be good. Well, he'll <laughs> claim fair, everything. I, I, I claims he coaches about 80% of the top 100 men's and women. So <laughs> it sounds like I'm wailing on him. I do, I've enjoyed Patrick's company in the past. I think he's quite a, an entertaining. I'm person. sure he's got a lot of yeah, interesting sure ideas. Sure, he's a sound bloke. I'm sure he's got plenty of stories. I'm sure he pays for dinner a lot because he's really wealthy. Never, he's never paid for my coach. dinner, I hasten to add. <laughs> um, yes, you mentioned that there are not many out-and-out clay court players 
kind of sitting around the top of the uh, WTA Tour at the moment. Uh, I don't know if you'd include Belinda Bencic in that group, but she is the latest uh, Tour winner. She beat Ons Jabour in a very decent three-set final in Houston, the Volvo Car Open, which is an interesting name. I'm assuming in America people don't know that Volvos are cars. I don't. I, don't, I can only assume that's why they've called it the Volvo Car Open. Um, six one five seven six four. She triumphed over Jabour. Uh, she beat Ekaterina Alexandrova in the semi-final, which is not a bad result either. Uh, Kalanina, I think she beat as well. So. Um, a decent run. She beat Madison Keys as well, who I suppose uh, is hard enough on home clay. George, um, I, I, I don't really know how to process Belinda Bencic. She's been in good form this year, um, but I don't really know how to process her winning a title on clay because it's not a surface I would necessarily think of her as someone who's a threat on. I think she's just a pretty steady good player on most surfaces. I think, you know, I think Bencic... The one thing she's got going for her at the minute is you kind of know what you're going to get from her, and that can be her Achilles heel, as Calvin has spoken about tactically before, in terms of she won't really change what she's doing, even when it's going quite badly. Mm. But she does also generally bring a pretty high level um, week in, week out, and what she does do, she does quite well. So, you know, I think she's... The thing to remember with Benchit, really, for me, is that if you actually had points at the Olympics, she's comfortably a top-10 player right now. Like she's had a good year, and I can't even. I don't actually know. She's thirteen. Thirteen, but you know she's a she's a you know if you'd had a thousand points for the Olympics, which I personally think is kind of what that should be if it's going to be a worthwhile event. Agreed. Um, then you know she'd be probably top five right now, probably something around that. So you know she's been pretty solid for the last year or so. She's going to be a good challenger. Same same for Oz Jabil, to be fair. I mean she's been a fantastic addition and in inverted commas to the women's game that she's brought that kind of top level consistency playing really well so yeah it's good to see guys like that having regular matches and building up some rivalry because it was a good match mm. um, she's never made it past the third round of the French Open Belinda Bencic she's actually only made the third round once so she's by no means gone well there um, I think it's I, I, this may be complete nonsense but Calvin will definitely be able to um, illuminate me so the US Open is the place where Belinda Bencic has always done best. She obviously made a semi there three years ago. She's had two quarterfinal appearances there, far better than any other um, slam. The US Open is also the one where they use a completely different ball on in the women's um, tour, right? And and I think um, Craig Tizza said that would be why um, Ash Barty never won a US Open. Is there is there is there a flip side to that that Belinda Bencic is only ever going to win a US Open because something about that ball seems to really suit her? No, I wouldn't say so. I think it's probably more the court. Um, and it's also just quite random. The women's game is quite random anyway. And with the way that Belinda Bencic plays, you can times that randomness by about 15. <laughs> and I think that that's what gets us to... She's had a couple of good US Open. She also, at the US Open, she should have... You would expected her to have beaten Raducanu this year. And she was pretty, pretty underwhelming in that match. So... Mm. It's difficult to say that the conditions suit her so well that they give her such a big, big advantage. But I mean, she should be better on clay. She'd been brought up on it, I'm sure. George, I thought you, I thought you had waved at me. Sorry, I think I just flicked my uh, collar. I didn't. You know, I'm just no, I'm editing none of this. Leaving all these into today. Today, my <laughs> yeah. intervention. Uh, honest, this is just so that people at home know what it's like to you work. Can blame it on the leg injury. 
<laughs> but you're not even on the drugs anymore. I'm Gosh, yeah, I know. But like, I think it's because I'm just like twitching occasionally to like move my leg up a little bit more comfortable, which you're mm. misreading as me nodding at you like, hey, give me the mic, James. I see. Okay. Um, well, since you've had a little injury update from George there, let's do a quick injury update on the tour. Um, Matteo Berrettini, he had surgery on a hand injury. He says he's out uh, basically of all the clay court events except the French Open. Um, I suspect he's not. He may turn up to the French Open because, you know, prize money and ranking points, but I don't think we expect him to be much there. Dominic Thiem's out of Monte Carlo, which isn't great news given his uh, attempts to come back. Stan Wawrinka is also out of Monte Carlo, but did at least play. Uh, He lost to Alexander Bublik in three sets, followed by an amazing interview from Alexander Bublik that we just don't have time to go into, but I will put it on my Twitter. I'll put it on the Love Tennis Pod Twitter. Uh, It's seven minutes long, and he talks about wandering around the court like an elephant, among other things. (laughs) Um, Rafa Nadal's also out of Barcelona with that rib injury, but I think we kind of half expected that. Um, let's run over to Monte Carlo, where we have Novak Djokovic back playing. I saw him playing Stan Wawrinka in a mini tennis match with three balls, so that was valid in some ways. Keepy uppies with Neymar and Verratti I saw as well today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wish he'd just play tennis, really. But I mean, and he will. You know, he is going to. Like that's that's not in question. Uh, and he could face, and we hope that he will face Carlos Alcaraz in the quarterfinals. Um, how? How do we see this match? That matchup. I mean, we have a terrible history on this podcast of previewing <laughs> matches that never happen. But let's let's preview this anyway because hopefully they will play at some point. Yeah, I was going to say we can take this as a broader <laughs> view of this match that's surely going to happen at some point unless Djokovic is just banned from everywhere eternally. Calvin, I think you said a couple of weeks ago Alcaraz will never have played anyone like Djokovic, which is certainly true. Um, how does how does he deal with that? I think it'd be a really interesting match. We don't know where Djokovic is at, do we? It's like five months since he last played a match. So, like, we just don't know. I mean, where, you know, what is he rusty? Has he been playing a lot of pra- even practice matches? You know, will be interesting. I think he'll get Alcaraz. I guess he'll, I can see him winning his first few and then he'll get Alcaraz right on the cusp. And if Djokovic chews him up, then you've got to look at it and go, right, well, everything that we've seen in the last three months. It's just, just been because Djokovic was out, isn't it? I mean, I must say that what, what a meeting of minds that was with Djokovic, Neymar and Verratti, three of the absolute lunatics of the sporting, <laughs> sporting world. Um, although what, what it did crack me up a bit that everything I've seen, they've just basically ignored Verratti like he wasn't there. Yeah. And it's all just been like, Some somebody blunt. put um, Djokovic loses to Neymar. And that was it. And like, Verratti's there, perhaps the best midfielder in world football, just completely ignored. Um, but yeah, I... I'd be excited to see him play. Um, I mean, he may get uh, he may get Dan Evans before that. We know Dan Evans has had a, um, a lucky break, hasn't he? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was just going to say actually that you know the, the interesting thing with Djokovic last year is that a lot of the kind of events outside the slams weren't that impressive. It kind of felt like he was just turning up half the time and not really that focused, particularly around the clay season. And then he was just kind of uber switching himself on for the slams so i don't know the comments he's made this week have been a bit like i've been like pent up for three months now i'm going to unleash it on people that kind of suggests to me that he would be going at this quite hard this week and ready to make a bit of a statement and i don't think you could make a bigger statement given the other guys who are out at the minute like in nadal i know medvedal's not great on clay but still that's the sort of guy you want to come back 
and give a beat down to probably the next guy after that in terms of who's at the top of the tour at the minute is Alcaraz so if that match does happen this week or in any other week in the next month or two then that would be very exciting to see how it goes I'm interested to see what kind of reaction he'll get it's funny with Sporks I think at the at the Australian Open if he'd have played it wouldn't have been a good reaction I think no. people with short memories but sport is strange in that the longer you're away, despite the reason why you might have been away, the fans tend to like you when you come back more. As as we've seen, the most bizarre one of this for me is Tiger Woods, and who's just since he's come back, not not from this one, obviously, he had the accident, but when he came back last time, he was just completely universally loved. Mm. And you thought that, like, have you forgotten that one of the reasons he's not been around is because he acted pretty disgracefully in his yeah. private life? And just nobody talks about it. And you think with Djokovic now, has he passed that sort of threshold of when he won't be liked? Because we haven't seen him in a while and everyone will have just forgotten about the vaccine stuff. Yeah, it's. I mean, this is something that everyone in sports PR and in fact beyond knows. It's called distancing. Um, lawyers do it all the time when they're defending someone who's guilty uh, because, or in fact, who is in a very high profile case. They They push the trial date back as far as they can because they want a jury to have had time to process it basically and it's the same thing like Phil Mickelson currently isn't playing golf because he said some ropey things about the Saudi Arabian League and now he's just going to spend six months in hiding and when he comes back people will weigh it up in their minds and they won't be as hot about the previous thing and in the end they remember they just want to see Phil Mickelson play golf and I think it's the same with Novak Djokovic I think people will will see him and go oh thank god the world number one's back playing tennis and and crucially with the way tennis because it's a tour sport is he came back here. He chose this venue that I get to go to to come back and I get to be in the room when this happens. Um, To misquote Hamilton, that you want to be in the room when it happens. Um, So I think think that will... I think he'll get a great reception. It's also Monte Carlo, like... He lives there, doesn't he? I mean, yeah, he's... exactly. It's effectively a home tournament for him. I mean, beyond th- there'd coverage. have to be some fans there, which currently in this Chilich Songa match, there aren't. So, um... <laughs> Yeah, to be fair, it's because it's 2011. It's all very... Con- <laughs> True, not yeah. many people can time travel to get to True. those matches. Um, uh, we should just run around all the different champions. I mentioned uh, Belinda Bencic uh, winning in Charleston. Uh, is that Tatiana Maria winning in Bogota as well? I can only imagine what that tournament is like. Uh, David Goffin winning in Marrakesh. Am I right in saying that is only David Goffin's sixth career title? It's certainly a much lower number. I think it is, in fact, his sixth career title um, at the age of 31. Feels like only his sixth win for about two years as well. I was going to say, who was playing that tournament? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that's a little harsh. Felix Uh, was in there, wasn't he? Yes, Felix had been there. I'll tell you who he beat. He beat Dame Jumour. Pablo Andujar, who's a decent clay court player. He's the king of Marrakesh, I think you'd call Andujar. He's always popping up in finals there. Uh, Federico Correa, and then he beat um, Alex Molkan uh, in the final, which is probably why his name was on my mind uh, earlier. But yeah, I mean, you know, David Goffin. Strong challenger energy there to that, um, <laughs> that draw. Um, and just finally, a name that I threw into the WhatsApp group earlier today uh, because he's won his second consecutive ITF tournament in Turkey without dropping a set, Hamad Medjedovic. I just wonder if this is a name to watch for the future. Um, he's 18 years old. He's Serbian. Calvin, he was a world junior top 10 player, I think, as well. Yeah, very, very good junior um, top 10. This kind of thing can happen. Um, you never know with these these guys. They obviously can play tennis. 
um, and then say they physically develop well in the next six to eight months, then they can take on the men's. Also, it's not that big a shock. If you're top 10 in the world juniors, then you're probably winning um, futures tournaments, I would say, even before you come into juniors, even if before you come out of juniors, sorry. So, um, yeah, he's, he's won. He's beaten some good players. I give that. And he beat... Um, he beat a guy called Timo Stodder in the final of his latest one, who is a very, very decent um, 25K level player, and he destroyed him, love and one. So mm. that's not bad going. And specifically seems to be a very good player on the clay. Looking, I mean, he beat a couple of top 150 guys last year on the clay as well, so yeah. something to go. George? Is Timo Stodder like the Derek Chisora of the boxing world? <laughs> one of those you have to tick off on your way up a heavyweight career. He's the gatekeeper of the challenger <laughs> level. But yes, uh, always good to give you a name to watch out for. Of course, we told you about Carlos Alcaraz long before anyone else was talking about him, so maybe he is the next big thing. Uh, George, you wanted to mention the Billie Jean King Cup, or the King Cup, as we're going to call it, I think we decided, or the maybe the Billy Cup, I don't know. We just agreed it couldn't be the BJ Cup. <laughs> Yeah, yes, and I think everyone will agree on that. Please never mention it again. Uh, Great Britain are heading out to the Czech Lawn Tennis Club in Prague, uh, which I'm sure is a lovely establishment, uh, to take on the Czechs. Yeah, tough tough draw. I mean, I think I was looking through their squad earlier, and it's quite funny that the Czechs are still leaving out, like, Pliskova and Vondrasova. Hmm. Still looks like we're going to get absolutely hammered by, like... Sorry, Sorry, they've left out Pliskova and Krachikova and they've got Vondrasova and Mukova to come mm. out and no doubt roll us over. But and Martinkova and Buzkova if you need a bit more firepower. Yeah, Siniakova and Doubles. I mean, they've got such a strong kind of squad. But it'll be, it's a good test again for Raducanu. And, you know, there's quite often these these uh, national competitions bringing out the best in the best players. You know, they suddenly feel a lot of pride for their country, etc. Can this be another example of where Raducanu raises a level? I've never seen her play on clay. I'm not sure she's played a tour match on clay. I haven't got a record of a professional level game on clay. Yeah, so like, I'm not sure that has happened. Um, um, she's. I mean, I think, you know, outdoor clay, probably the worst possible surface for this GB squad. She, she's leading it. Uh, Harriet Dart... Katie Swan and Sonne Cartel. Calvin, I imagine if you were going to pick a surface to play against those four players, you'd probably pick clay as well, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, 100%, yeah. Um, I don't think any of them will necessarily be... I think all of them would probably have it as their worst surface, uh, if I'm honest. Sonne will be decent on it, but Sonne's, you know, Sonne's not playing. Um, it's quite a big deal for her. I mean, I, I, I think I'm right in saying it's potentially her first call-up to a tie of this level. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, um, and it's obviously quite a big deal. She's someone you know a little bit about, obviously. I mean, what what, what do people, what can people expect from her in the next couple of years? Uh, she's a really, really talented girl. She's got all the shots, complete player, lovely touch, slice, slice nice slice backhand, um, no real weaknesses. She's, she's a really good player. She'll keep climbing the rankings. She's been dominating the, the lower lower echelons of the game um, mm. and used to play against there's that famous video that goes around of her playing Radicanu in under eights or something <laughs> I think that was doing the doing the rounds when Radicanu just won the um, just won the US Open last year um, was, that, was that a Freudian slip there Calvin and that you think she's going to win the French Open as well this summer <laughs> uh, no I do not think she's going to win the French Open <laughs> um yeah, it's you, you wonder with Radicanu though, don't you? It's like some stage she's gonna have to start winning some tennis matches. Mm. As much as 
certain people on Twitter just think that it's perfectly fine for her to keep losing and we should just all keep same patience and that make that makes it right, then when you know, when's she gonna win some? Yeah. I mean let's not forget she she did beat Caroline Garcia, but uh yeah. She needs to start I mean, I think people will I think the thing is, uh, the question I get asked by like non-tennis fans who obviously all watched her win the US Open, they're all going, "Oh, is she a complete flop? Is she just like you know one-hit wonder?" And it's like, well, no, but also, you know, it's not like she's just turned up and she's Martina Hingis and she's just battering everyone. Like, there is definitely room for improvement. I, I don't think the clay court season is where that improvement will be made, unfortunately. Um, although you could say that she's starting on clay from a base level of zero. It's like not, we, it, it, it wasn't a fluke. Like, let's clear that up. It 100% wasn't a fluke. It was, however, a per- perfect storm of situations that came together for her to win that tournament. Um, but if it doesn't get better soon, she's going to have a lot of points to defend. Hmm. She's got fourth round at Wimbledon defend, um, and she, then she's going to have the US Open. Yeah. And, it, and yeah, it, it could get to a point where, you know, she goes out in the third round of Wimbledon and the second round of the US Open and all of a sudden she's like 85 in the world and you know not getting major or into here and not getting major or into there and it just makes life hard doesn't it? I mean I think one thing we should say as well that Lely Fernandez has hardly been pulling up trees since then either mm. it's been I think there's been any much any difference in what they've done she won a title didn't she? She won the title in Monterey which was the same title that she'd won the previous year yeah. so i saw someone try to claim that she had therefore made zero progress because <laughs> she had just won the same title as she'd won before which i you know i find quite hard to argue i against. think aside from that one week though and would i be right in saying she's only won one match so she won open. two two matches in indian Wells. she beat uh anisimova but admittedly on an injury walkover yeah um in that weird match and then she beat shelby rogers as well so yeah, she's pretty short. She she did play in Charlton this week and she lost to Magdalenette, which is not a great looking result. I mean, I know Clay is not again her her specialty, but yeah, not not exactly great. Magdalenette hit ten aces in that match as well, which I don't really understand. Yeah, I think this is just going back to Raducanu a bit. I mean, it's going to be the thing we've been saying all year is oh, the really good thing for her is she's got this six month period where she's got zero points to defend. I mean, she can't have added much more than 200, can she? <laughs> like, it, well, it's not looking good. I mean, that, that might be high 200. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. Well, I mean, you know, she, she's, she's not had many weeks where she's just lost in round one. Like, a, she gets quite a lot of buys, so she gets into round two. Um, and she did, you know, she did beat Caroline Garcia in wherever it was, Miami. And there are some results in there, but yeah, as you correctly say, chaps, it's um, it's looking a little bit bleak. Have you got any other business, George? We're well over time. Well, I was going to naturally segue from it looking a little bit bleak to tennis great Boris Becker, who could find himself behind bars in a couple of weeks' time. That is looking pretty bleak, but I'm, I'm not sure we have much to comment beyond that just 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 trying to work out whether we can break all the contempt of court laws in the next five minutes and maybe maybe get <laughs> well, you going to sentencing isn't he so it's okay we're, we're all right okay to say whatever now he's been found well just to give people the actual details uh he's found guilty of four charges under the insolvency act relating to his 2017 bankruptcy he was accused of hiding millions of pounds worth of assets to avoid paying his debts he was declared bankrupt in june 2017 um, so he was found guilty of four charges. He was acquitted of a further 20 uh, at Southwark Crown Court. He was cleared of nine counts of failing to hand over trophies and medals from his tennis career. 
Um, he told reporters outside court he would not be commenting on the verdict, but he was found guilty of transferring hundreds of thousands of pounds from his business account after his bankruptcy, failing to clear a property in Germany and concealing €825,000 of debt. He could find, face a jail sentence carrying a maximum term of seven years for each count. Um, what value sending Boris Becker to prison has, I don't know. But um, welcome to criminal justice in the UK. Has... um. Has Jack Draper not won a challenger this week? It'd be a bit odd if he hasn't, wouldn't it? He's not <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's not playing. He's back in the UK, chilling out. Yeah. Just but normally yes. wins one every week, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that is actually the news we should be reporting. Breaking news, Jack Draper didn't win a tournament this week. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's all we've got time for. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. If you do want to get in touch, as always, if you want to get your question read out on the pod, then either email us, lovetennispod at gmail.com, Drop us a tweet at Love Tennis Pod or the guaranteed way to get your message read out on the pod. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes and then we'll read that out next week. Uh, and yes, of course, most importantly, do come back next week. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.